Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Dirty Sexy History. I'm here with my associate, Ziggy Stardust, and this is the second episode of our witchcraft series. As Ziggy is my uh, familiar of sorts, it only makes sense that he's here to help me out with this episode. So, pumpkin spice latte season is officially back, so you know what that means. Halloween is officially upon us. Now, just this week, I found a cookie jar shaped like a giant pirate skull, complete with an eye patch over its empty eye socket. Did it make sense? Absolutely not. Did I buy it anyway? You know I did. Of course I did. <laughs> uh, now, as promised, as I mentioned, this is week two of our Halloween series, following on from last week's episode about medieval ideas of witchcraft as written in Burckhardt's Decretum of the early 11th century. Uh, you don't have to listen to that one first, but it is a little more lighthearted than this one, so you might want to circle back around as kind of a palate cleanser. So uh, this week we are picking up where we left off with a look at how those ideas changed by the end of the Middle Ages, and well, let's just say they didn't get to be more accepting. Now, when I researched this episode, I came across several articles that approached the topic of medieval witchcraft from kind of an interesting place. The writers don't believe that witches exist. So, to clarify up front, witches absolutely do exist, okay? As recently as 2018, an estimated 1.5 million people in the United States identified as Wiccans or practicing pagans, and that number is only on the rise. Now, even though that sounds contradictory, Christian witches do also exist, and they always have. Further, just because something doesn't make sense to you doesn't mean that it's delusion. Even within the Christian church, different denominations have contradictory ideas about what's superstition and what should be part of Christian belief. Some denominations have traditions that are viewed as kind of witchy by other sects, and there's nothing wrong with that. It's just a different approach. So, as far as public perception goes, witchcraft, for lack of a better term, is all a matter of perspective. Centuries ago, many now-established forms of medicine and science could have been considered witchcraft, whereas things like alchemy and astrology were arguably taken more seriously than they are by many people today. Maybe magic is just another science that people still don't fully understand. Belief in the supernatural was a reality of everyday life in the Middle Ages, but there was a good deal of fear surrounding it. To a lot of people, there still is. Anything that doesn't make sense to you must be mental illness, or if you're in 15th century Germany, it probably came from the devil. When you have a very narrow perspective and function within a very black and white religious tradition that leaves no room for shades of gray, the devil becomes a convenient scapegoat for everything from bad luck and bad weather to sexual desire and unexplained phenomenon. We can laugh at this from the relative safety of the 21st century, such as that safety is, but plenty of people still believe this today. So what I'm trying to say, you know, a bit, a bit too long, what I'm trying to say is whether or not people actually were witches is completely beside the point. Most were probably scapegoats or maybe just misunderstood, but none of them deserve to die. So, with that disclaimer and a bit of context out of the way, I just want to make it clear that when I talk about witches in this episode, 
this isn't about the reality for these people during this period, but the church's fantasy of what a witch was and what they thought they were capable of. Take everything they say here with a huge pinch of salt, and maybe some holy water or enchanted herbs for good measure. As we talked about last week, people definitely believed in magic and witchcraft prior to the 15th century, but they weren't always so threatened by it. Even in very Christian areas, some pagan practices persisted, and people seem to have understood it as we might today. People practicing magic work with various deities for various reasons. That's not to say that the church didn't object. They absolutely did, but the punishment wasn't always so severe. For more on that, once again, check out last week's episode on Burkhardt's Decretum. But all that changed around the 14th century. In 1326, Pope John XXII issued a papal bull titled Super Ilius Specula, which encouraged inquisitors to persecute heretics and anyone practicing magic. He was convinced that witchcraft was becoming more common, and he wrote, Some people... Christian in name only, have forsaken the first light of truth to ally themselves with death and traffic with hell. They sacrifice to and adore devils. They make or obtain figurines, rings, vials, mirrors, by which they command demons, asking their aid and giving themselves to the most shameful subjugation for the most shameful of ends. He didn't have to make it sound so metal. (laughs) Anyway, this bull had the desired effect, and for the next century and a half, witch hunts took place across the Alps. Witch trials became increasingly common until the publication of the Malleus Maleficarum at the end of the 15th century made the paranoid fantasy of monks everyone's problem. First published in 1487 by Heinrich Kramer and Jakob Springer, monks of the Dominican order, The Malleus Maleficarum, or the Hammer of the Witches, was a medieval treatise written to prove the existence of witches and to advise magistrates on how to convict them. It became the most influential and widely used book on witchcraft around. By 1669, 36 editions had been published, significantly contributing to the witch-hunting fever that saw an estimated 60,000 people executed all across Europe, although sociologist Nachman ben Yehuda actually puts that estimate much higher, possibly as many as half a million people over 300 years. Though the content of the Malleus Maleficarum is presented as fact, there were some who did not take the guidelines at face value, including, interestingly enough, people involved with the Spanish Inquisition. You know... If the Spanish Inquisition thinks that you've gone too far, you might need to question your life choices. I'm just saying, okay? Ah, Now, for a little extra context, it is interesting to note that the witch-hunting craze really took off as an indirect response to the Reformation. The countries that were hit the hardest, Germany, France, and Switzerland, were those where Catholicism was the weakest at the time. In more firmly established Catholic countries, Witchcraft wasn't seen as such a threat, and it really hadn't been prior to the formation of the Protestant Church. It has been suggested that witch hunting on this kind of scale resulted from the tensions between the churches, as the faithful on both sides needed a common enemy to fight. 
The Malleus Maleficarum is a wild ride, and just about all of it seems pretty far-fetched. But it helpfully heads that off in the first section, saying that anyone who doesn't believe it is already the victim of witchcraft. Convenient. Now, according to the Malleus Maleficarum, witches might hurt you, your livestock, your property, offer aid to the saucy ex-girlfriend you ditched for your straight-laced wife, or even eat your unbaptized children in a tasty soup. The enemy is everywhere and capable of everything from the fantastic, like controlling the weather, to the mundane, like imagining themselves in other places. I mean, who hasn't wanted to be somewhere else? You thought you were safe imagining yourself in Tahiti with Tom Hiddleston, but no. That makes you a witch, and you'd better keep that diabolical filthiness to yourself. And speaking of diabolical filthiness, it was around this time that the perception of witchcraft in Europe became much more closely associated with the devil. The common belief was that any unusual power must come from the devil, and there was only one surefire way to secure it. You have to fuck them. You'll notice I'm using they, them pronouns for the devil here, and there's a very good reason for that. At this time, people believed that the devil could take the form of a man or a woman to seduce unsuspecting people into evil. Dominican monks believed that witches were created by having sex with an incubus or a succubus, basically a super hot male or female incarnation of the devil. Intriguingly enough, it was sometimes said that a succubus was a reanimated corpse who would revert to its death state once their secret was discovered. As a quick sidebar, you know I can't resist. In ancient Rome, there was actually a type of sex worker who specialized in this. No, really. <laughs> the bustuarii worked in cemeteries and wrote their prices on tombstones, and the most successful among them often pretended to be dead. We'll talk about that more on a later episode, but if you can't wait, we have already covered it on the blog as well. But I digress. <laughs> Appropriately enough, witches were said to meet with their supernatural lovers on Friday or Saturday nights, so far so normal, usually in interesting places like cemeteries. Rather helpfully, the incubus usually took the form of just some random guy. One woman, who was later burned as a witch, detailed her first encounter with an incubus. When the incubus devil had seen her, and had asked her whether she recognized him, and she had said that she did not, he had answered, I am the devil, and if you wish, I will always be ready at your pleasure, and I will not fail you in any necessity. And when she had consented, she continued for eighteen years, up until the end of her life, to practice diabolical filthiness with him. Oof, 18 years of consensual diabolical filthiness. God, that sounds terrible. But these meetings weren't always one-on-one. -on -one. It would seem that if you stumbled into one of these group gatherings, you'd know it. Around this time, the idea of the witch's Sabbath came about, which went on to become a popular theme in art. A witch's Sabbath was said to be a massive orgy between the devil and the local witches, among them new recruits, who would have to do a bunch of ridiculous things for their initiation, namely denying salvation, kissing the devil's butt, spitting on the Bible, having lots and lots of sex with everyone there, eating babies and corpses, for some reason, listening to Marilyn Manson and blowing their nose on the American flag. 
Okay, I added those last two. But the rest of the accusations are no less ridiculous, okay? They were dreamt up by bored monks trying to imagine the opposite of what you were supposed to do and just writing that down instead. According to them, there were three types of witches. Witches who caused harm but could not heal. Witches who could heal but could not cause harm. We call them doctors now. And witches who could do both. The Malleus Maleficarum warns us that all witches are evil regardless of what they use their powers for, but a lot of their reported abilities sound useful for dealing with superstitious peasants or just entertaining oneself when trapped in 15th century Germany. Here's a partial list. They said they could inflame the lusts of certain wicked men towards some women while making them cold to others raise hurtful tempests and lightnings, cause sterility in men and animals, throw into the water children walking by the waterside, make horses go mad under their riders, transport themselves from place to place through the air, either in body or imagination, affect judges and magistrates so that they cannot hurt them, cause themselves and others to keep silent under torture, Bring about a great trembling in the hands and horror in the minds of those who would arrest them. Show to others occult things and certain future events by the information of devils, though this may sometimes have a natural cause. See absent things as if they were present. Turn the minds of men to inordinate love or hatred. Strike whom they will with lightning. Make of no effect the generative desires and even the power of copulation. Kill infants in the mother's womb by a mere exterior touch. Bewitch men and animals with a mere look without touching them and cause death. And, of course, cause plagues. Obviously, this list is ridiculous, but these fantasies had very real consequences for thousands of people. Given that so many people were incarcerated, tortured, or killed based on accusations of witchcraft, one would think that the evidence for this would have to be pretty watertight. But no, the Malleus Maleficarum assures us that actual proof was not necessary and should not even be sought. They write, We pray God that the reader will not look for proof in every case, since it is enough to adduce examples that have been personally seen or heard or are accepted at the word of credible witnesses. That's right. All you need for your life to be thoroughly ruined or even ended was to piss off a neighbor who could then accuse you of bewitching them or otherwise causing them harm. Unfortunately, little advice is given for those who have been wrongly accused. It's worth noting that although so many people who were accused were women, plenty of their accusers were women as well. The witch trials took power away from certain women and delivered it into the hands of basically medieval Karens, only too happy to see their neighbors and rivals burned or hanged for any perceived slight. But plenty of the victims and accusers were men as well, and the Malleus Maleficarum advised everyone to be ever vigilant, as no one was safe from the terrible powers of the witches. It states, It is asked whether a man can be so blessed by the good angels that he cannot be bewitched by witches in any of the ways that follow, and it seems that he cannot, 
for it has already been proven that even the blameless and innocent and the just are often afflicted by devils, as was Job, and many innocent children, as well as countless other just men, are seen to be bewitched, although not to the extent as sinners, for they are not afflicted in the perdition of their souls, but only in their worldly good and their bodies. So fear not, dear listener, there are a few people who are impervious to bewitchment, those who prosecute them in any public official capacity, again, convenient, those who use sacred objects from the church to protect themselves, and, of course, those who are otherwise blessed by holy angels. That's interesting. You'd be safe if you had a blessing from the angels, or bought the equivalent of one from a church. But why are the inquisitors safe? According to the Malleus Maleficarum, witches automatically lost their powers once they were arrested. This is a rather easy explanation for why they didn't use their powers of mind control or just turn into a frog or whatever to escape. Proof of this is given in an anecdote about a judge named Peter who oversaw the arrest of most notorious warlock Stadline, a poor man from Lausanne. According to the authors, Peter assured his officials that they could not be hurt by Stadline. You may safely arrest the wretch, for when he is touched by the hand of public justice, he will lose all the power of his iniquity. As Peter promised, Stadline was burned at the stake without any supernatural interference. When magistrates in the town of Radisbon were asked why inquisitors were safe from witchcraft, they said they did not know, unless it was because the devils had warned them against doing so. We can only assume that the Inquisitors were also on his payroll. Now, if you're not an Inquisitor or working on behalf of one, fear not. You could also protect yourself with blessed candles, blessed salt, and consecrated herbs, which actually sound exactly like witchcraft, except that you're buying them from the church instead of your local metaphysical store. You can also protect yourself by regularly attending Mass. Another example explains, There were three companions walking along a road, and two of them were struck by lightning. The third was terrified when he heard voices speaking in the air. Let us strike him too. But another voice answered, We cannot, for today he has heard the words, The word was made flesh, and he understood that he had been saved because he had that day heard Mass. Go to church, kids. Alternatively, you could seek an angel's blessing. Now, you wouldn't be protected by a common blessing from just any old angel. While some angels might protect against witchcraft specifically, many do this by blessing just and holy men in the matter of the genital instincts. I beg your pardon? (laughs) Now, this is exactly what it sounds like. And before you get your hopes up thinking this is going somewhere sexy, it's really not. A few examples are given of holy men who, after devoting themselves to lives of chastity, were granted the complete removal of sexual desire, which manifests itself in oddly surgical dreams. According to the monk John Cassian, the abbot Serenus was delivered from his earthly desires when an angel of the Lord came to him in a vision at night and seemed to open his belly and take from his entrails a burning tumor of flesh and then to replace all of his intestines as they had been and said, 
Lo, the provocation of your flesh is cut out, and know that this day you have obtained perpetual purity of your body, so that you will never again be pricked with that natural desire. But Serenus wasn't the only one dreaming of divine castration. Heraclides tells of a monk named Helios who abandoned a monastery full of women, who were all virgins, we are assured, when the temptation became too great. According to the story, Helios was visited by angels in a dream to enable him to return to his work with the women. One seemed to hold his hands, another his feet, and the third to cut out his testicles with a knife. When they asked if he felt himself remedied, he answered that he was entirely delivered. Once again, we're back to that idea that sexual desire, admittedly natural even in the Malleus Maleficarum, is a weakness manipulated by witches with the help of the devil. It couldn't be that you're just attracted to someone. There must be a nefarious reason why. It was common for accusations and coerced confessions to be sexual in nature, and not just because witches were said to fuck the devil. In the Middle Ages, women were commonly viewed as hypersexual and dangerously seductive, and the handbook explains that women were more likely to be witches because, quote, witchcraft comes from carnal lust, which is, in women, insatiable. I know, right? Well, by the 15th century, most people were getting married later, if at all, and there were more single women in the workforce than ever. Despite the influence of the church, sex and contraception of various forms were shockingly common, and for a lot of people, casual sex wasn't actually that big of a deal. But as we're seeing again, having lots of single, sexually empowered women makes people nervous, so of course those women were perceived as threatening in various ways and too often targeted. As you'd expect, the accusations themselves were often sexually charged. Women were accused of stealing penises and literally keeping them as pets. I mean, people still do that, but they tend to be silicone now. <laughs> they were also accused of making good men horny and extinguishing their desire for their respectable, church-approved wives. Look, denial is one thing, but making your attraction someone else's problem to the tune of tens of thousands of women persecuted because you're essentially ashamed of your boner is kind of a dick move. By the time witch hunts tapered off around the mid-17th century, at least 60,000 and likely many, many more people had been executed for witchcraft, and in some places, as many as 90% of the victims were women. Initially, unconventional older women were targeted, but over the years, the focus shifted to single women and sex workers who were viewed as more sexually threatening to the men who wanted them and the romantic rivals who knew it. Women in the workforce with less inclination to be mothers were perceived, unconsciously or otherwise, as threats to marriage, the church, and the very fabric of society. Midwives who knew about contraception and abortion were just as bad. They couldn't be controlled, so neighbors reported on them, and they were burned instead. Sound familiar? Still, witches could be any gender, and though they were accused of cavorting with the devil to various ends, the Malleus Maleficarum notes that God, quote, gently directs the witchcraft of devils so that when they try to diminish and weaken the faith, they, on the contrary, strengthen it and make it more firmly rooted in the hearts of many. So in their own words, 
God is also with the accused, while the devil protects the inquisitors. Well, that sounds about right. (sighs) Guys, this is some heavy stuff. (laughs) This is by no means a complete history, okay? This is an absolutely massive subject, and I've had to limit it to a fairly basic discussion of a single source. This is really only the tip of an incredibly disturbing iceberg, so if you are interested in the subject, I absolutely encourage you to look into it yourselves, and I recommend the work of historian Stuart Clark, whose book, Thinking with Demons, is about the best and most complete history of demonology in existence. Giles would definitely have a copy to give you an idea, okay? So this week, I'd like to thank JSTOR once again, as well as Ed McKay's in Greensboro, where I bought a full translation of the Malleus Maleficarum for $5 back in 2015. You cannot beat used bookstores in college towns, I tell you what. This episode of Dirty Sexy History was brought to you by our marvelous patrons on Patreon, Melanie Baker, Michael Beckwith, Andy Christopher, Rachel Cooney, Elizabeth Davis, Michelle Dunbar, James Finch, Adriana Herrera, Howard David Ingham, Janine Meberg, and Jessica Miller. You guys are the best, and we cannot thank you enough. If you would like to support the show, please check us out on patreon.com slash dirtysexyhistory. Please rate, review, and subscribe because it really does help us out. As always, you can find us through our website at DirtySexyHistory.com or find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, where we will, of course, post photos for this week's show. Dirty Sexy History is an independent podcast, and this episode was written, produced, researched, and all that good stuff by me, Jessica Kale. And it was edited by the always patient, always very helpful, John Jenkins. This week's sources include... The Malleus Maleficarum of Heinrich Kramer and Jakob Springer, translated with an introduction, bibliography, and notes by the Reverend Montague Summers, Dover Publications, New York, 1971. David M. Friedman, A Mind of Its Own, A Cultural History of the Penis. Nachman ben Yehuda, The European Witch Craze of the 14th to the 17th Centuries, A Sociologist's Perspective, American Journal of Sociology, Volume 81, Number 1, University of Chicago Press, 1980. Stephanie Irene Spoto, Jacobean Witchcraft and Feminine Power, Pacific Coast Philology, Volume 45, Penn State University Press, 2010. We'll be back again next week with the next part of our Halloween series. See you guys then.